Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 39 of the podcast, the topic is covering industrial innovation. Our guest is Amy Feldman, senior editor at Forbes. In this conversation, we talk about whether manufacturing's image problem is going away, the future of industrial innovation post-COVID-19, and when will we see the next 50 billion ARR industrial scale-up. We also discuss the future of tech journalism and the art of narrating innovation. Augmented is a podcast for leaders. Hosted by futurist Trun Arnenheim and presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform. And associated with MFG.works, the industry upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm good, Trond. How are you? I am splendid. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Uh, it's not every day I have a famous journalist, uh, you know, on the uh, on the microphone. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is exciting. I, I mean, maybe it's me, but uh, journalism is very exciting when you can break stories, when you can influence uh, uh, generations of, of people who are reading about uh, a topic over time. I, I think it still is very fascinating. Uh, and you must as well, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun profession. You get to talk to people about all kinds of cool stuff. So I love it. I'm still excited by it and, and hope the readers are too. Well, but there's more to it because what I've understood is that you grew up in Pittsburgh. So we're going to talk about a specific type of journalism that has something to do with Pittsburgh. What What is it about Pittsburgh and uh, you know where you grew up that tuned you into the particular type of journalism that you do? I have to correct you a, a, a second. I didn't grow up in Pittsburgh. Both of my parents did. So it's kind of the... Ah. It's kind of the family seat there where everybody was from Pittsburgh, but I, I grew up elsewhere and, and spent my childhood driving back and forth to Pittsburgh uh, on, on many occasions to visit relatives there. Um, and, and Pittsburgh is very much of an industrial town. It's the industrial heartland. I have relatives who worked um, for the steel companies when steel was the big thing in Pittsburgh. And, you know, maybe it's because of that or just something in my personality. I have always loved going into factories and seeing how things work. It's one of the things that I think is really, really interesting in my job. How do you create physical stuff? How do you do it? What is What makes it work? What doesn't? Um, it, it, it's, to me, absolutely fascinating. Well, I happen to agree with you. And I think both, uh, and I'm glad you corrected me, because growing up and having that relationship you had is slightly different. But either way, the industrial heartland is fascinating. And anytime you can get, you know, go into a factory, especially these days, right? And I, that's going to be my question. Have you been in a factory lately? Because this seems to be another problem. We can't go anywhere. Oh my God, not since COVID started. And I, I, I really miss traveling to, to see, see places. I've, I've finally, I've been vaccinated and I'm now looking forward to uh, uh, getting back to doing more stuff in person and less stuff on Zoom. 
Well, exactly. And I, I guess this is what I want to talk about is the importance of the physical space in terms of innovation. It's such a it's a fascinating topic, right? That we are arguably in this digital age, yet in manufacturing, we are still, I guess, in this hybrid situation where there are these factories and they're so important. They determine so much of what's going on. Um, I wanted to maybe start uh, with you kind of g giving us your overview of your, your best take of what's happening in industrial innovation right now. So we are, as you pointed out, some of us getting our vaccines and we are, I don't know if I think that we are at the end, uh, you know, in America of COVID, but we are in the hopefully later stages of this situation. Um, and it has changed us and it has changed industrial innovation for sure. What is your best take on where we are right now in, in uh, this space? I think that's absolutely the case. And I think it's been really interesting to see that this period of, of, of hiatus and, and, and really difficult period for a lot of people has also been a period of, of real innovation, both out of necessity and because of some of the technologies that have sprung up. I mean, out of necessity, of course, because for, for factories, you know, with, with social distancing rules and to keep everybody safe, it's accelerated the pace of um, this digitalization that had been happening before. But I, I think it's accelerated it to the extent that even when we come out of this, it's not like those gains are going to be lost. They're still going to be, to be there and that trend will still be there. Uh, right. So, so the question that I have for you, you've done a lot of pieces lately, uh, you know, th that are on this intersection of digitalization and productivity. Is it, is it a wave right now? Like you, you're interviewing a bunch of startup companies and, uh, I mean, would you say that th there is a wave of innovation that is, you know, happening over the last few years that that'll have to stop? Or do you think this just like, do you, are you getting more and more inbound requests and you're like, you know, the, 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 this innovation, the innovation stories, are they multiplying or are they stabilizing? I think they're still multiplying. I think there's been a, a huge amount of innovation and also a change among the investors being willing to, um, invest in industrial innovation where I don't think that was the case five years ago. And so to me, that's really interesting. The, the, the question though becomes, you know, which of these companies will continue to do well where, you know, some of them will, will not do well. Some of them will merge or will get acquired or something else. And which of those companies that are starting up now uh, will be the ones to sort of to survive or to become bigger in, in five or 10 years from now. Is, is that something that goes into your thinking when you are featuring someone or are you kind of assuming that if companies are on an upward track and there's a kind of buzz around it, that they will be relevant? I, I know you and I, in the prep call, we talked about kind of your ethos and you know what what is a killer story for you? And you talked to me about the importance of having at least some pieces in your career that stand out and are kind of like landmark pieces that will last longer than the weekly news cycle. I, I think, yeah, to me, the killer piece is the piece. 
sorry, that's my phone, my landline yeah. ringing. Should no I go problem. turn that off and start over? No, don't worry. We can, uh, I, I will deal with it. We just can't talk when it's ringing <laughs> because okay. I'll have to edit that out. That's not a problem. Okay, I'm going to just wait for it to stop ringing so that... Um, it's fine. I turned my mobile off, but I wasn't. I didn't want to unplug the thing from the wall, and I wasn't exactly. Sure to turn it off. Yeah, who does I'm that? Done, who does that I'm anymore? Pulling it out of the wall. I'm okay. surprised you have even calls at two thirty. I get calls at dinner time, which they think. I think people think dinner time is six. That's apparently what the marketers think. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I get calls all day, and I I refuse to get rid of my landline because I much prefer to have conversations on it than to have conversations on the mobile, which I find really annoying. Yeah, no, I understand. Well, I guess I was asking you about this uh, killer uh, piece that you're always aiming to write that, that lasts longer than the news cycle. Yeah, no, to me, the pieces, you know, I come up from a magazine background. And so the pieces to me that matter are the ones where, you know, five years later or 10 years later, you're still like, oh, that was the definitive piece about X. That that said something about that moment in time and where we were and, and what it meant. Um, you know, one one piece that I, I feel like is, is standing up and I hope will continue to stand up, it's a little bit less industrial though it is manufacturing, is they did this story um, a, a couple of years back on Ginkgo Bioworks, which is using biology to manufacture. And that whole area has just exploded. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're continuing to do really well. They, they're kind of one of those uh, startups that took really 10 years to hit, but now has hit. Yeah, I have worked with them quite, quite closely. It is an incredible story, actually, right? That uh, a bunch of grad students and their professor <laughs> working really hard for a long time. And uh, there weren't many that fully understood the, the grandness of what the scheme that they have created and the foundries and this whole idea, which I think with, with you, I think it's going to be a lasting contribution to productizing, you know, synthetic biology in a way that turns it from, you know, kind of like fun little wet science that takes forever into an engineering mind. So take essentially that whole field into the field of engineering. Exactly. You, exactly. Right? To take it to mass production and to be able right. to say, okay, we're going to make things with biology at the same scale and in the same amount and with the same speed and efficiency yeah. that we do out of petrochemicals. I think it, that, that's, a, that's a lasting and enormous change. So let's just go back to that piece. I'm curious, you know, how do you find these stories? In this case, uh, what's the background story? How did you get alerted to that piece? And it's a while back. Um, how did you decide this is the moment you wanted to write that piece and not a year later or a year earlier? That was a piece that came came out of a conversation with an editor. I'm lucky that I have very good editors at, at, at Forbes. And we were just talking about this area of, of synthetic biology and I didn't really know much about it, but my editor knew a little bit more about it. We were talking about it. And, and he sort of sent me off and said, come back and tell me which, which company should we write about? And, um, and I looked into it and I realized like, this is, they're, they're the one that's furthest along. They're the one I have to write about. And uh, back, that was back when we could travel. And I spent, I think, three days up in Boston uh, spending time with them and, and, and seeing what they're doing and, really talking with them and 
was just kind of blown away and then spent a lot of time talking with other people in the field and trying to put it into this context of what does this mean? You know, what does this mean for the average person, not just for the, the really geeky people who are into it, but for people who are going to buy things, people who think about how you make things. You know that they own the essence of, uh, of a red rose. Yes. It's pretty crazy. Yes. Yeah, they've done some really wild stuff, and not just the, uh, you know, the manufacturing stuff, but they've also had some really, you know, really interesting things that cross over into, um, into art or into other areas. Well, sure, they have a big push into textiles, right? And they, you know, they can make pretty much anything with these uh, foundries these days. It's, it, it is a fascinating story indeed. Um, I wanted you maybe to unbundle some of the types of companies and tech areas that you find the most fascinating, you know, at the moment, because there's a big uh, story around kind of in the US, I guess it's called smart manufacturing elsewhere. It's called industry 4.0 in this sequence of industrial revolutions. And we're arguably at least up to number four. Um, but what are you seeing as, and maybe maybe it's not the technologies that fascinate you, I'm guessing, you know, you're a storyteller, but it's a bundle of, I guess, technology, fascinating founders, fascinating changes in industry. What exactly would you say, where, where are we right now with, uh, with that whole problem set of, of sort of which technology? So synthetic biology clearly interests you. That does, and I, I've written a lot about 3D printing. I find it really interesting how it is, um, going from what we used to think of as these, you know, desktop machines that did little doodads to serious industrial industrialization of 3D printing. And I, I've written a bunch about that. I feel like there's, um, you know, it's always sort of two steps forward, one step back, I think. But we really are sort of moving forward in that. And there's some really interesting stuff happening there. Yeah. And I think that's the case, right, with many technologies is that I mean, like Gartner has this hype cycle, but you know, when it at at the, it's at the top of the hype, you know, people in, with printers they they were buying these printers and they're expensive, and then sometimes they gather dust because you also need some skill, and if they break down, you need to fix them. So th this is like any technology; it's complicated. You got to have a plan. You can't just right. You, you can't just introduce three D printing. You got to know how to use it. And then there's even with three D printing, you need scale, right? And that's expensive. You can't do much. As a, if you are GE and you got yourself one 3D printer, you can't launch a product. You know, if you're 3M or something and you said, all right, we're going to get a couple of 3D printers, you can't launch a worldwide product line that way. Right. So, you need scale and, and you also need design because to just 3D print something the way that it was produced previously doesn't give you that much. But to come up with a new way to 3D print something where, for example, if you're Boeing and you can make parts that are much lighter and therefore your airplanes take less fuel, that then becomes something very interesting. You know, it is fascinating to me how 3D printing is sort of at once both sort of touted as like the everyday man's home, uh, you know, fun hobby project. And, you know, you can, everyone can be a maker, but also it is equally producing, you know, parts for the International Space Station and, and airplanes. The, yeah. the range there is enormous. Yes, it absolutely is. So it's it's one of those technologies which uh, I guess who knows where it's going, right? It goes, um, 
up in size, you can start printing. Well, some people have been printing houses, right? So you can. Yes, there's a couple of companies now doing houses, and I think not even just houses, but whole communities that are being 3D printed, which is really pretty, pretty amazing. And, um, you know, would have the potential to, to create houses much cheaper and at scale, which could be super helpful for the world. Well, um, I'm tempted to uh, talk about one of your uh, last stories, which was on vaccinations, because, you know, it wasn't on vaccinations as much as it was on the industrialization of vaccines, which goes a little bit back to our discussion on, you know, synthetic biology. Uh, They are very related, actually, right? is, Is it possible to rethink the way that life science works? You did this story very recently on, on that. It's fascinating to me that manufacturing, you sort of think of it as a slow-moving industry. And, and maybe if you do think of it that way and you think of all the problems, and, and there are many, um, of course, then, then everything is incremental. But then you have ever so often these breakout folks, and you've interviewed many of them, that refuse to think in that mold, that don't have this sense that, you know... Um, you know, these may be foundational industries, right? Going back to another of your stories from Construct Capital, but but they're not necessarily static or they don't have to be static now. Well, how do you see that that evolving? I mean, are we, are you seeing stories which, you know, will, will manufacturing be able to change periodically uh, as fast as they are now? The, the piece that you mentioned on vaccines was was really interesting to do. I mean, the, the company that was doing it, it's called Resilience, and it was started by this uh, very top uh, biotech venture capitalist named Bob Nelson. And the idea is that vaccines and, and drugs more generally, the way that manufacturing is brought into the process very late leads a lot of um, drugs and vaccines to to be done almost in a lab based way rather than in an industrial way, and that by doing by thinking about manufacturing early and setting it up differently and using more technology, you could change the way that this happens and and make a huge difference in the way that drugs and vaccines are produced. One of the things they have going for them is that they raised eight hundred million dollars because this is an extremely capital intensive area. Um, and, and so that, you know, in itself is interesting. Sure. Well, I mean, we live in a fascinating age. Another topic I know you've written about and care about, you know, generally is sort of automation and, and especially robotics, right? This is a topic that divides. It's very easy to write a story about scary automation, you know, or you can write it about technology optimism. These robots are so fascinating, what, what do you think about when you write a robotic story? Because it can be framed in so many different ways. I think like it's, it's interesting. There ends up being this black and white view of robotics, either robotics good or robotics bad. And I tend to think like other technologies that robotics is a technology and it can be used for good or for bad depending on how it's rolled out and how it's, integrated with the way that workers are currently working. You can either say, okay, we're going to take these robots and we're going to get rid of all the people, which is sort of the fear that people have. Or you can sort of give the the, the sort of the, the sort of whitewashing thing of saying, we're going to take these robots and if nothing is going to change, everything's going to be fine. But the reality is somewhere in between that 
like with all technologies, it, they are going to change the way that people work. And, and that's, you know, there's no way around that. But there's also, I think they can be used for good. And, um, it, you know, I, I edited this story last year that a colleague wrote on a company that was using robotics for recycling. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, especially during the pandemic, there weren't a lot of people that wanted to be in recycling facilities, you know, touching needles and touching old crap from people's houses. These are not jobs that people really want to do. They're not very good jobs. But robots in that situation can, in theory at least, increase the amount of recycling that we do, which is overall a good environmentally. And they're filling jobs that currently are going unfilled because they're not jobs that are good jobs. Well, it, it would have been easy if it's that, right? Because there is this dull, dirty, dangerous discussion that all the roboticists and, and indeed all the companies in the robotic space, they, they immediately quip back to you and say, well, all of these jobs are bad jobs. And you, you were sort of saying that, but I wonder, sometimes I also think that that becomes an excuse because you're just trying to get away from the discussion, which also needs to be had, which is some jobs will be gone. And what's in its place is going to be two things mainly. And, you know, this is just a postulation that you can agree with or not, but there clearly will be very advanced jobs that, that demand high, high cognitive skills. And that's a challenge in of its own, right? How we, are we as a society going to start producing more people with very high cognitive skill? It's typically something that takes college education, you know, four, six, eight, ten years at top colleges, very expensive very time-consuming and very inefficient. But then maybe there's something in the middle. There's a big discussion, I think, on, I think they call it middle jobs, like somewhere in between, like more than high school, less than college, right? And But it's very unclear to me what, what those jobs really, sh you know, what should you know in the future to be a good industrial worker? And, you know, the presumption being industry is going to be a good thing in the future because all of those really bad jobs, hopefully, you know, will be taken over by machines. What, what, what do you see? I mean, I think you're right that, that having robots will mean that there's the need for, for people who are more educated, who have more skills. I don't know more educated and have more skills. Those don't, those are, those are somewhat different things. They don't necessarily have to go together. Um, but that, you know, manufacturing jobs are not going to be just jobs about brawn, but I don't think that they necessarily are right now. I think let's give let's give people who work in factories a little credit for, you know, being smart, having ideas, knowing what they're doing, and hopefully there's a way to to have technology and people work together rather than um, technology overcoming people. Um, I know people people point to people who are sort of pro-automation will point to sort of what happened when ATMs rolled out and ATMs didn't end up getting rid of the need for bank tellers. They kind of worked side by side and now we kind of can't imagine not having ATMs or even not being able to deposit our checks on our phones because it's so much easier. So I think we don't know entirely how this is going to play out yet and the not knowing, the ambiguity leads to a lot of fear because there is there is this ambiguity and there may be 
jobs that disappear, or there may be people who have jobs that are going to change dramatically, and some people are going to be better at change, and some are not going to be as good at change. And how do we as a society then help and support the people who are not good at change to continue to have a good life and to not get sort of priced out and pushed aside? Because that, as a society, we can't do. I, I agree with that. I think that is a, a big issue. But you you are, of course, right. There are an enormous amount of jobs that are unfilled in America today in the industrial space. And, and I guess they're unfilled because there are qualifications that people are not willing to get in sufficient numbers, whether it is going to a six-month course in some very specialized machine operation field to operate a type of industrial machinery, or it is maybe a job that is so niche that people don't even know that there are openings in, in those fields. There seems to be an unusual communication challenge in the field of industry. You and I seem pretty convinced, right? It's a fascinating field to be in, but it hasn't always been that way. How do you explain this sort of time lag and, and what will it take for people to realize that what they knew as their uncle's uh, you know, lost job at the shipyard or their grandfather's you know, tragic destiny, it, we are in a different time now. And it's not just outsourcing and you know, cost squeezes and you know, 70s and 80s were traumatic you know, in, in, in for many factories across the world. It is a different time now. Why does that take so long to sink in? It's a really good question. I, I don't really know. But I think you're right that, you know, people think of manufacturing, they think of industry and factories, like what they looked like many years ago. And how do you bring that perception into the modern era? I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I think it's going to be, it's, it's partly just reframing the entire discussion. Some of it is plain old information. Like you just have to point out that, you know, if you like AI and all of those technologies that we have been talking about, right? Robotics and 3D printing and sensor technology and Internet of Things, all of these fascinating words that people say they're interested in. Well, that does not need to mean that you want to work at a social media company. You can actually do all of that in industry and better. I mean, so someone has to start saying that in a sustained manner and, and reach the right people with the message, right? I think high school, that, that's where this starts. I mean, earlier, but definitely if you don't reach the high school population with these messages, then I think we're in trouble, right? I think you're right, at least by high school, if not earlier. Yeah. Well, thinking about sort of trends in, in, in this sort of industry, you are watching a lot of startups and you cover a lot of startups. What, when are we going to see the, the next startups turn into industrial powerhouses? Will, will, there, will there be uh, a, a Siemens and a GE and, uh, you know, in our era? coming from your stories? I think there will be. But I mean, you and I had talked about this earlier, and I, I don't think we're seeing that breakout yet. We're starting to see the companies that are, you know, billion-dollar companies, or at least, you know, billion-dollar and multi-billion-dollar valuation companies. 
but we're not hitting the the, the scale yet of, of of the old industrial companies, and it's not entirely clear how many of these companies will end up standing on their own versus being acquired by the existing industrial behemoths. So I think that's going to be something that's that's really interesting as it as it continues to play out because there's not yet these clear winners. What about this issue of, uh, well, whoever it is, whether it is a new behemoth or an old old one, what do you see these enormous industrial companies, what kinds of roles should they take on in a future society, right? There's clearly, with, with, with uh, power comes great responsibility. And nowadays, it's not just the sheer size of them as employers, because we've had massive employers before, like in the US, a Walmart or in, in other countries like the National Post Service and things. We have had giga, you know, giganormous employers before. But the new thing is it's coupled with this very powerful uh, technology together. So it's not just, you know, where will they be coming from? I'm just curious if you're, you're thinking when you're interviewing these uh, entrepreneurs that that have these aspirations, do you see do you see them as um, have they thought about what they actually want to do if they get there? Because you know, it, it, let's say you have a new industrial behemoth, they are growing up in a society where suddenly their actions are going to matter, right? I mean, in the olden days they built railroads and and did things, but we are arguably, I guess, in a time and age where the the big companies of this decade, they will determine where this planet is going, right? If you just think about the sustainability or resource constraints that we're facing, it's an interesting time, wouldn't you say? I think it's absolutely an interesting time, especially with the sustainability issues and the and the questions on it and the extent to which industrial companies can either become better environmental stewards or wreck the planet, depending which direction we go. Yeah. So, so what about these? So you and I talked a little bit about uh, Tesla, just as an example of perhaps a a breakout, right? Arguably it is, it it was a startup and and, and it did get to a size that is significant. Um, The ecosystems around those companies are also interesting, right? And and I to me this is familiar just because I grew up in Scandinavia and, and Nokia at some point was hoping to become well I mean they they were an important company but they were building this massive ecosystem around it that then has spawned a bunch of startups in in Finland which kind of explains their startup festivals and a lot of stuff that that happened after that but um. Yeah, I'm just curious. So is that where you go searching for stories in these industrial ecosystems around the great players? Is that where I mean it's I guess, around universities and around these uh, great players. There's a there's a lot of dynamics. Yeah, I mean a, a colleague of mine covers transportation um, separately. It's sort of its own its own world. But there has been this Tesla mafia which is fascinating where it's it has spawned, as you were talking about with Nokia, and I hadn't made that analogy until you just mentioned it. But you know, there's there's been like Fisker and Lucid Motors and a bunch of other um, autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles companies that have spun out of um, entrepreneurs who got their start at Tesla 
And it is, you know, I was thinking of it more as as similar to the PayPal mafia where they all went off and started other companies. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if there's other um, larger companies that can spawn something similar. I mean, I think Tesla is in almost a unique position in that. Right. I wanted to take a different tack and go back to what we talked about in sort of journalism. That. The future of tech journalism is interesting to me. You told me something when we were sort of prep talking. You said, well, aren't we all tech journalists this day, these days? Because I don't know exactly what you meant by that, but I, but I think something about, uh, at least this is something I'm thinking about. For a while here, you know, I, I call myself a bit of a futurist. And one of, one of the challenges a futurist has is, I think, similar to your challenge. And you are a futurist also, because when you write about technology, for some time and luckily i think that time is over when people thought they knew the future um it was almost like yeah okay so you think you're a tech journalist well that's nice well i know the future i have an apple device right i know the future right you know my kids have apple devices look at them like we know the future this there was this like zeitgeist like 10 years ago at least where everyone thought they knew the future it must have been very frustrating to be you you know, you're like writing these stories and then people are like, yeah, 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 of course. I, I know Tesla. Yeah, I know. I know these things. Like, you can't tell me anything because I, you know, there was this little attitude like no one can surprise us anymore. We have, we have consumer technology at, in our, at our fingertips. There are no more surprises. And then COVID and then, I don't know, quantum. They're, they're just, guess what? There still are surprises. There's always surprises. Yeah, there's always surprises. And this past year, obviously, has uh, has taught us that in spades. But I think also in terms of, you know, everybody as a tech journalist, I think of something a little bit different, too, in that 10 years ago, we used to think of tech journalism as being a very specific thing. It was covering the tech companies. You know, there were these t- companies that did tech, and then there were companies that didn't do tech. And now you think, okay, well, if you cover you know, if you're covering agriculture, you're covering, you might be covering robotics companies that that are in agriculture, or you're covering, you know, retail, but the backbone of all retail companies right now is, is, is data mining and AI. So whether you think of yourself as a tech journalist or not, if you're writing about business, you're in some way writing about tech. That's that's fantastic. I, I think that's that rings true for for me as well. But but is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Because in some sense, you know, a tech journalist was slightly myopic. If you think about the stereo, proverbial wire journalists who are like always writing about the latest gadgets and things, maybe not so much gadgets with wired, but but anyway, a tech journalist is also a bit of a stigma because you have like a one track mind. Isn't it liberating that you can actually just be a journalist? I think I come at it from the other perspective in that I've only considered my, I've never particularly considered myself a tech journalist um, since I've covered many things in my career, but I do now cover tech. So I think of myself on the other side of like, oh, tech isn't this alternate universe. Tech is, tech is everything. It's everywhere. It's, it underpins stories in the same way that all business stories are tech stories. All business stories are also human stories. Well, I mean, you're speaking to me. Uh, I wrote a book about future tech, and one of my points in that book is that you, a lot of tech development is driven by anything but technology, right? Or at least it should be. So if you if you get into this one-track mind and all you see is tech, that's not a healthy perspective. 
Exactly. Then you have, you know, cool tech, but it's not about what the, it's not about the tech itself being cool. It's about what does it do? What does it do? And do you like what it's doing? Because if not, you better change the trajectory, right? And do something, uh, make sure that you can shape it. And I, I feel like this is an area where people take this fatalistic attitude that, oh, it's just going to happen. It's like bound to go this way. But if you study technology, it goes any number of ways, depending on what people want it to do, right? Depending on what people want it to do and depending on who the people are that are making the decisions as well. Well, you've met a lot of these people. Are you uh, optimistic about the future based on the founder stories and uh, business stories that you write these days? I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in some ways and pessimistic in others. I'm optimistic in that I feel like I've met some absolutely brilliant people who are making really interesting businesses that are going to change the world. I feel pessimistic in that in tech businesses and in businesses that are tech businesses, especially that are funded by Silicon Valley, the founders are still overwhelmingly white and male. And that is a problem. Yes. And why for you, is it a problem? Because what they develop is what's in their head and they have a necessarily limited perspective because of their, uh, you know, background or is it, do you specifically have things in mind that you know would have turned out different and better in society if there had been a more diverse, I'm just trying to understand, you know, how do you frame it? Cause it's a very interesting discussion and I definitely think I agree with your general tenet. I just, I'm just curious what your rationale is. I think there's things where you, you don't know what companies you would have if your universe of people founding companies was bigger. You, all you can know for sure is that you would have different companies. You know, you might have the companies that we have now, but you would have other companies that we're not seeing. And you also see this with, you know, the discussions over AI and how AI can be used in ways that turn out to be racist or turn out to be sexist. And I think if you had more women and people of color working on AI, it would, it would do different things, that the technology itself is reflective of the people who are creating the technology. Look, with that, I definitely agree with you. I uh, Remind me to introduce you, if you don't know her already, Tanya Mishra is a friend of mine who runs a, a very new education startup uh, called SureStart, where they're trying to change the face of AI. And they're, you know, she's coming out of an MIT startup background, but decided to basically quit that and dedicate her skills to teaching uh, people of diverse backgrounds about AI. Whatever background they come from, she takes them in, and does a, a you know coaching training sessions with them, and then churns them out as employable people in the tech industry. It's a, it's an amazing uh, initiative, and I think it goes to the heart of what you're saying. She sees it as well. You know, she was involved with building algorithms for emotion AI that's going to go into uh, you know cars. And she realizes that we need a very broad set of skills because otherwise, the, even the algorithmic level, you're going to build something into that technology that reproduces who you are and not who the world is. So 
very very well said and i would i would love to meet her it sounds like she's doing just amazing stuff uh, I think she has dedicated herself to one of the more interesting and important problem of of this era. So, I you know it's uh, just trying to support that um, type of uh, endeavor is important. I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about sort of a different tack. You are a journalist, and Forbes has now put up a paywall. That is great for journalism potentially but it's bad for people who don't pay are we should we pay for good content uh, that's a long conversation but I, I i i do think generally yes i think other other industries have found that you can't do everything for free and i think journalism is also realizing that you can't do everything for free. Yeah, I, I am sympathetic to that. But I also think that we've had 40 years now of internet, maybe 35. And arguably, that has been a good thing for a while. And then maybe the last decade hasn't been so good. But there's been a lot of content generated and created and consumed, and it's been a good thing. What's going to happen to all of that content when all of the good content increasingly is behind paywalls? What is going to happen to the free content? Because it was, you know, when free wasn't a distinguisher between quality, then it was a little easier, I guess, to start out. But I think nobody is doing 100% paid. Most places have. You know, you can read a few stories before you have to be paid. Um, and then, you know, there's also, you know, we're, I, I know a number of newspapers are also doing like the COVID stories where COVID is so important to people that right. that coverage will be free. We're not going to say the coverage that you really, really need. We're going to put it behind a paywall because that isn't, you know, in some way, I guess, isn't fair. Uh but I do think that this idea of, of paywalls and of charging for things that are, are not free to produce is, um, is the right way to go. Yeah. No, I'm not claiming it's unethical or anything. I think, you know, people who work should, should get what they, uh, you know, they should get compensated for what they're doing. And I think hopefully it leads to, better journalism because it becomes uh, you know a more sustainable business model again and it's possible to indeed because that was where I was going to take this I was going to ask you you know what does it take to write a great investigative business story like even just to the point where how how, how much time and resource does it take you because it's surely quite different from me writing a blog post this morning <laughs> it's 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 all over the map. I mean, a story can take not long at all, and a story can take months. It just depends on the story. So, some stories that you have out in, in, in Forbes this year took you months to write or to to p compose. Yes. Yeah, that's not that's that amazing. Doing, not that you're spending months on one story and not doing anything else in the meantime, but yes. 
No, I understand that. I understand that. Look, I, I want to ask you just sort of to round up as you're looking into the, the, the longer term future, whether it's this decade or, or sort of beyond that, it's always interesting to just hear what people think. What, what, what do you see for, for industry and industrial innovation? Is it like we started out with, you know, the, the, the universe is expanding? Or do you see that we're now kind of platform building and, and after that things will somehow not stagnate, but they will be on a different level and then and then things will have to sort of settle before uh, before anything else happens? And I think that's an interesting question because I think it gets back to sort of this the question that we were talking about earlier about what does it look like when we come out of this, you know, COVID period, whether that's, you know, starts to be later this year or next year or however long it, it takes. But so many things have happened during this period that it, it really feels very hard to foresee what the world is going to look like as we come out of it, you know, with industry certainly and, and, and more broadly as well. Yeah, it, it is hard to predict, but but one thing that seems to be happening is that we're all a bit more aware of of our surroundings, and I guess people are a lot more aware, or they should be, of the importance of manufacturing. It, it, it if it is one lasting impact of this crisis is that we're aware that manufacturing, to a certain sense, is is who we are, right? Because yeah. it's not just empty consumption. This is. We, we need this stuff. Yes, people now know about manufacturing and people also know about supply chains, which two years ago, people would have just rolled their eyes if you wanted to have a conversation about supply chains. And now it's sort of a cocktail conversation. I know, that is, that's completely crazy. It, it, that is really different. It's really different. It's funny how the conversation can shift that way because there's nothing... It reminds me actually about sort of the technology discussion. It's not like technology is so complicated that no one can talk about it. It's just that you got to find the right way to frame it. And once a good number of people are interested, you can plenty talk about supply chains. There's nothing, and there's nothing even like dead boring about it if you just, if you care enough, right? Right, yeah. right. And I think after that, you know, whole ship getting stuck in the Suez, now now everybody wants to talk about supply chains. You can't ignore it after that. Yeah. Well, that's certainly something of a, of a lasting change. Our, our cocktail conversations, I don't know if cocktails does, exist anymore, but w we will certainly be having different discussions for a while. For sure. On our Zoom cocktails for a while. That is, uh, yeah, maybe not the optimal format for me, but... Um, Look, it's been it's a pleasure to to dive into to the mindset of of a business journalist, and you've you've done so many great pieces. I um, think it's an unfair question, but uh, what what kind of uh, things are you working on? Just give us a broad idea. Are you working on some exciting entrepreneurs? Do you have some? What's cooking? I don't I don't like to talk about stories in advance. It always feels a bit like. Uh, the word we used growing up was like it's it's a kanahara. It's like going to bring down the, the the wrath of the gods. To All right, so let me reframe the question then to get us out of trouble. What stories would you be looking for? Like what what have you not found yet that you would love to discover? I'd like to. I I, I always want to find the the companies that are going to break out. Like I feel like 
you know, we talked about sort of robotics companies, but I don't feel like we've figured out which one is really the breakout one. You know, there's tons of startups doing tons of interesting things, but which one is the one that's going to become the multi-billion dollar company going forward? Hmm. So that's, that's what I'm looking so for. So I should call you if I think I have a candidate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue the conversation without the recording. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be my company, but I'm just saying if I if I think I have the not unicorn, but uh, the and uh, not decacorn. If I think I have the next uh, GE of of robotics, uh, you know, I, I will I will let you know, and you can interview them. Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a good way to end. I think there will always be good stories for you, uh, Amy. You seem to have a knack for finding them, and they are very enjoyable once they are in print. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Trond. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Likewise. You have just listened to episode 39 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim. The topic was covering industrial innovation. Our guest was Amy Feldman, senior editor at Forbes. In this conversation, we talked about whether manufacturing's image problem is going away, the future of industrial innovation post-COVID-19, and when will we see the next 50 billion ARR industrial scale, scale up. We also discussed the future of tech journalism and the art of narrating innovation. My takeaway is that industrial innovation is hard to narrate, but the masters, such as Amy Feldman, make it seem exactly as compelling as it is. Tech journalists get to not only cover, but also uncover and explain industrial trends for a wider audience. There's much to love in Industry 4.0 technology adoption and many interesting players in the surrounding ecosystem. It helps not to think just in terms of individual companies, but consider what they are connected to, and what adjacent fields will be impacted. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 21 on the future of digital in manufacturing, episode 18, transforming foundational industries, or episode 7, work of the future. Augmented. Industrial conversations.